I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Sanjeev's the host on my left, uh, media on my left, was born in Derbyshire and now lives in Sheffield. His debut novel, Ours of the Streets, published in 2011, is the story of a homegrown radicalisation and a terror attack on the streets of Sheffield and was called Nothing Short of Extraordinary by The Observer and a moral work of real intelligence and power by The Times. His second novel, The Year of the Runaways, which focused on a group of mainly Indian migrant workers, also based in Sheffield, was acclaimed by Kamala Shamsi as a beautiful and brilliant novel, superbly well-drawn and of our time by The Telegraph and compelling by The Financial Times. As well as winning the EUPL in 2017, it won the South Bank Sky Arts Award for Literature, the Encore Award for Second Novel, and was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2015. And in 2013, Sanjeev was named as one of Granta magazine's best young British novelists. Evie Wilde, my far left, was born in London and grew up in Australia and South London. She studied creative writing at Bath Spa and Goldsmiths University. Her first novel, After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, published in 2009, won the John Llewellyn Rees Prize and a Betty Trask Award, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for New Writers, the Commonwealth Prize and the International Dublin Literary Award. In 2013, like Sanjeev, Evie was included on Grant Magazine's Once a Decade Best of Young British Novelist list. Her second novel was published in 2013, All the Birds Singing. The Encore Award, there's so many accolades for both these writers, <laughs> and the Jerwood Fiction Uncovered Prize, also the EUPL. It was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Prize, the James Tate Black Prize, the Sky Arts Times Breakthrough Award, a long list of the Stella Prize and the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. Evie's been acclaimed as a writer who reconfigures the conventions of storytelling with sure-footedness and ambition. And she also runs Review, a small independent bookshop in Peckham in South London. Um, and Evie and Sanjeev are both going to read from their prize-winning books. And I didn't actually ask you, would you like to go first? Sure. Right. So I'm going to read from, there are two uh, narratives in this. Uh, one takes place in the UK and one takes place in Australia. Um, I'm going to read from the Australian bit because it's warm. And, um, and it's a bit grotty. There's um, a young woman who's been working on the streets in Darwin and one of her regular customers propositions her to come and live with him as a sort of maid with benefits on his lovely sheep farm. And she gets there and of course it's a sort of hellhole and she's... Um, kind of held prisoner uh, but without you know without bars uh, and this is the first time she meets she's met sheep and felt a um, felt empathy for sheep <laughs> you know <laughs> um, so there's this pen of he's he sort of said he's got this lovely sheep farm there's a pen of um, withering sheep out the back I wonder how those sheep are still alive how long they've been trapped there next to their slaughterhouse. Since Carole left, I don't know how long that has been. The pen is made up of flimsy metal barriers that can be linked or separated and moved one at a time. The sections are not heavy and the sheep, if they had a mind to, could probably break out. But they don't do a lot of anything much, just shift their weight from their hips to their shoulders and stare out at the horizon while the flies eat their backsides. The earth in their enclosure is coated in shit and just a few feet from the left of their pen is a dusting at least of grass. 
I start to shift the pen, panel by panel, expanding it slightly, edging the sheep over towards the grass. When they get in my way, I herd and shoo them, waving my arms. They are not bothered enough to be scared, but they more or less go where I tell them. They move with the weight of ghosts, and I noticed a few are resting on the front joints of their legs, like they haven't got the strength to stand. It takes me two hours, during which time Otto and Kelly drive up to see why I've been gone so long. Otto frowns at first, but then he shrugs. Might get some meat on them, I suppose. And he drives back to the house, while Kelly watches out the back of the ute. The flies drink out the corners of my eyes and crawl over my shoulders and I let them crawl. I'm not sure what I was expecting, to see the sheep dance gratefully around in the puny grass I found them, but they just stand there, a silent little group. I try to move them about, but they're not scared of me. Resigned is what they are, and I tell them, you can move around if you want to, waving my arms and jumping about but they just sway a little in the hot fly air. I look at the wall shed and see the meat hook and I shift onto my other foot. Fair enough, I say, and cycle back to the house and put the sheep far in the back crevice of my mind with those other things that come only out in the dark when my guard is down and I stare at the night behind my window cage. Uh, hi everyone. I'm going to read um, a page or so set in India, and it's a young man called Dodji who's come to meet a a agent, a travel agent who's going to help his way across to Europe. Um, Shivroop Sky Travel, a small glass-fronted building with a life-size cutout of an air stewardess in the doorway. Dodgy pushed inside, into the freeze of the air conditioning. A dark woman, perfect strip of a million in her parting, looked up from behind her desk. She asked if she could help. She didn't smile. I'm here to see Mr. Tipperetti. And what is it in connection with? I'm here to see him about flights abroad. She sighed, seeming to understand, and leaned heavily to one side, perhaps pressing the button. Several minutes passed before a man stepped through the curtain at the back of the office. He was short, even darker than the woman, and with a jumped-up little moustache whose tips pointed to God. The woman said something in Tamil, and then the man clicked his fingers and told Dodgy to come upstairs. An hour later, and Dodgy was back on the street, his money satchel lighter. Two weeks, the man had said. He'd called someone in Diddley and said that Dodgy could be on a flight to Turkey in exactly two weeks. After that, he'd be trucked as far as Paris, which was in France, and from there, Dutchy would be on his own. Did he understand? Yes, Dutchy said. Of course, I'll come with you as far as Dilly, part of the service. And then Mr. Tiberedi took out some forms from his little Tamil drawer and snatched up the pen leaking in his shirt pocket. There was a map on the wall behind him. Where is France on there? Dutchy asked. Hmm? Mr. Tiberetti twisted round. Oh, no, 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 no. France is in Europe. That is South India. I am from... He reached back and jabbed his pen into the map. There, Kanyakumari, the southernmost tip of India, the end of the country. Dodgy nodded. It is the only point in the world where three oceans meet. So you see, it was in my blood to help people straddle the seas. He gave a little laugh. It sounded like something he said quite often. Anyway, I expect, you, I expect you will be wanting to make payment. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, yeah, if anyone hasn't read either of these wonderful books, they're actually on display and for sale behind us. Um, I'd like to start off by asking each of you what winning the European Prize for Literature meant, meant for you as writers. Um, well, for me, it's meant um, a, a sort of really nice broadening of you know, you, you write a, a novel at home on your own in a little room and you don't speak to anyone and the idea that people you don't know are reading it is quite an odd thing. You know, there's a moment when um, 
it's not just like your mum and your partner who've read it and you can't name the people who've read it and then to think that it then goes on to be translated and people are reading it in different countries that it's really it kind of blows your mind a little bit um, so you're no longer the sheep stuck in the yeah metaphorically <laughs> yeah, anyway exactly. dying yeah for me it's facilitated a great deal of movement in the in kind of the translation um, in the translation market. My first novel wasn't translated um, at all, actually, and my second novel wasn't. And then the, this prize um, came along, and since it, and as a direct consequence of it, I, I'd even go as far to say there, I think there's been eight, eight to ten um, translation deals, but especially in the Eastern Bloc. And that kind of, you know, it is just amazing to think that a book you write on your own in your room in Sheffield is suddenly mm. reaching out to people mm. in Albania or mm. Serbia. And um, so that's been quite a wonderful um, consequence of directly of the prize, I think. And do you think that's because of, with your book particularly, which deals with obviously migrants, um, and that's one of the you know refugees, it's one of the big topic of our times. Do you think that's why they're sold in those particular you know, rights are sold in those particular countries? Yeah, perhaps it's brought the prize has given attention to the novel in, in those particular territories. So, and perhaps it has, does have certain resonance in, in Greece or in Italy because um, it does seem to be a topic of the time. Although I'd argue it's always been there, and now there's perhaps just a slight, the topic's always been there, or, you know, if it's, if it's timely, it's been timely for 2,000 years, but mm. now it just seems there's some particular um, attention on it. And perhaps that's had some um, reason why it has been picked up in, in certain countries, in like Turkey, Greece, Croatia, those kind of places. And what sort of reactions have you had to... I mean, I think you've had about 10... I've heard, I've heard 18, like 18, yeah. Um, Counts the countries in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, that's been unbelievable. My, I think my first book was translated into maybe four. Mm. So it, that's definitely a direct result of the prize. And do you feel, both of you, that you have to be translated to be successful as a writer, depending on what that kind of tangible success means to you? Mm, no, no, it didn't. I mean, nothing really changes what I think of myself as a writer. I think, I, you know, whether you're shortlisted or you win or you're translated, you're still, you, know, you still think you're a rubbish writer. That's, yeah. just, that's, just, that's, just, that's just the way it is. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't change how I feel about myself as a writer or my work. Or it doesn't make the next work any easier or harder, actually. I don't feel any particular increase in pressure. Um, it's just always just coming to meet the page on the day and mm -hmm. do its... And, um, and learning from the page, I think was what Evie said earlier. Um, so I don't think it, I don't think it changes how I view myself or any other writers. Yeah. Do you think because there's been such a focus on literature and translation, well, just perhaps it seems to me in my narrow little world in recent years, uh, with the the sort of huge impact of the change of the Man Booker Prize being an international now international prize for fiction, um, and authors such as Elena Ferrante, Carla Wiknowskard. And now Olga Tokarczuk, a Polish novelist who uh, won the Man Booker International Prize last week. Um, do you think this makes a difference in terms of our recognition of writing and translation here in the UK? Do you think publishers are more likely to take a chance on an unknown writer? Um, I'd hope so. I don't know how. I don't know if it translates into actual yeah. sales. I mean, I know in in my bookshop we've we. It, it has made us focus more, I think, on works in translation, but we're a very small shop, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that works in translation sell a huge amount unless we kind of really push them. So it's kind of hand-selling. Yeah, in, interestingly, Eleanor Ferrante, is my brilliant friend, was the top fiction seller in translation mm -hmm. in 2015. So that kind of beat the Stig Larsson and the Yonosbos. Yeah. So that obviously is some kind of trickle-down effect or a word-of-mouth effect. I think translation is still about three percent of our of the books that are sold in the UK. Um, that are sold in the UK. So it, for me, it speaks to the kind of the arrogance we have in this country. Our mm -hmm. literary culture has, in particular, mm -hmm. about works in translation and how the value we put on. English language stuff or stuff that comes from America, we seem to have this massive crush on American fiction or we'll publish anything that comes from there, it feels to me. But with um, you know, our, our neighbours in Europe, it, we're, we're less open to, and I think that's to our detriment because the works I read 
I mean, it's a function of what gets translated, I guess, but the works that read in translation are, you know, it's not just that the stories are different because you know, they're about people with a different, slightly different culture to us, but just they, they're, they're written differently and they speak to you differently and they, they move you in different ways in the way that like, English language fiction doesn't do. So I think that there's a massive gap there in our own sort of being of ourselves. And how much do you think that gap might increase with, <clears throat> I hate to mention the spectre of Brexit, but we're going to be talking a little bit more about that later. I imagine, well, well I don't know, because I think you get the literature you deserve, and I think <laughs> currently, currently I, I do think, you know, this sort of arrogance that I have, I think it's, because I, I think our culture is currently particularly open towards Europe, our literary culture is particularly open to Europe, so I don't see how that would change. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, for example, I mean, I love a historical novel as much as anyone, but the way we seem to be enthralled to them, instead of, you know, perhaps, in, instead of, Books set in the contemporary world, and you know the way we, the way we're living, and the way we're speaking, and the way we mm. are actually being. Um. That's interesting because the Golden Booker shortlist, which was announced this week, uh, was entirely composed, I think, of historical novels. Oh, that doesn't surprise um, me. <laughs> <laughs> no. And it, perhaps that's part of the nostalgia that uh, we seem to be. Perhaps. I mean, Bre- Brexit's kind of like the. It's for me. It's. Kind of, you know, the, the death rattle of empire, just like the final gas before perhaps like those feelings wash you and we start seeing, realising that we are no more relevant than any other country in, in Europe, no more superior to any other country, or no more, you know, we seem to still carry this kind of this feeling that we're a huge superpower and hugely relevant in the world. And I think it's perhaps Brexit is the last um, point at which we might think that. How do you feel about that? Because you're, you know, you're half Australian and your books are set sort of partially, the last one partially in, in the UK and partially in mm-hmm. Australia. Um, how do you feel about that sort of last gasp of empire and what it's kind of meaning? Apparently we're, you know, we're set to do lots of deals with, with Commonwealth countries while obviously deporting Commonwealth yeah. citizens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think the UK and Australia, it feels a bit like out of the frying pan into the fire in that respect. It's, um, I, I look at my um, mother-in-law's bookshelf, and she is a, Bex- a Brexit voter, oh. and also Polish. Oh. Um, it doesn't make much sense. Um, and she's got Richard and Judy's novels on there, and not much else. Have they and a lot of historical stuff, a lot of... Um, and so for me, that's like a kind of little microcosm of, of the people who vote for that kind of stuff and yeah I think you're right and you get the literature you deserve <laughs> but how, how so sort of on that theme about identity as well because that's what you know the whole Brexit movement is supposed to be about restoring our national identity whatever that is and you've said you dream about Australia all the time mm. and you know your your books are about um, um, British British Asian in the first book and migrant families um, migrant individuals on the other. Um, how important do you feel it is to you as writers? Are you writing about your own identities when you're writing novels? I mean, obviously it's a, there's a kind of fictional overlay. How important it is to you to kind of explore that in your books? I'm not consciously. I don't consciously explore my own. Your whole life kind of comes into every novel, mm-hmm. like your experience of life, because it can't not really. But um, I don't consciously kind of sit there and think you're going to write a great Australian novel yeah or or this is my post Brexit novel you know I'm not in my writing I feel like it's not that poised (laughs) it's more um, a sort of jumble of stories which of course are affected by my surroundings but the anger and the sadness of of Brexit and, and that sort of thing kind of come into it in different ways I think yeah, I think it, my identity is it's, just, it's a prism through which I write, but I think the books inevitably just get refracted in different in different ways and go off. You know, they lose their base and they go off where they're, where they're going to go, which may be quite far from any kind of identity or any sense of myself that I might that I might have. But one thing that does sort of interest me is in my books, the first two anyway, are very much sort of rooted in the individual or a sense of you know an, an, an individual identity, even though 
the second novel might have might, might be an ensemble cast. It's still very much about ideas of individualism. And one thing I really like about sort of the not the books that I've read um, from Europe in in translation is actually you see so many more. This is what I meant. When, you see, this is what I meant when I said there's different ways of um, those books that seem to be different differently written. That there's kind of a collective um, conscience that play off. So I'm thinking of books like. Um, like Saramago's Blindness or mm. you know, anything by Jenny Openbeck. Well, I read um, a great um, slim book by a Catalan writer recently, uh, Merce Rodredo's Death in Spring. Oh, yeah. And though, Get you know, some great the, recommendations here. Like, they're less about sort of an individual consciousness, and you can sense like there's a, there's a collective community sort of at play here or, or being spoken about here, and that sense, that sense of moral weight that comes with that kind of fiction. I see it in like books I've read in translation, but I don't see it. I don't see it UK in, in the UK um, so much. So I think that's something I really get from European and also European writers seem to understand much more that people will people are perverse and people will act in ways that are against their best interests. Whereas in the UK we seem to think novels seem much more ideas of empathy and actually actually understanding the other, which is which is great and that's that's one function of a novel. But people are also, you know, um, weird and will do awful things for the sake of it. As a, that novel I read um, called Lullaby a few months ago. Yeah. And that some seems to speak to that. And I think European writers understand that part of the human condition, in my opinion, much more than I see um, UK writers doing. So there's, yeah, there's different ways of seeing, which I think if we don't cross that line, we, we won't fully understand um, ourselves, I guess. So I think I caught a glimpse, uh, mercifully brief, uh, of Salman Rushdie um, on um, Channel 4 last night talking about the great cultural divide. Uh, and he was referring uh, both to Trump's America and to Brexit. Um, do you have a sense of this great cultural divide that's either upon us or is about to be upon us? And, and I know this is a really big, lofty question, but how much responsibility um, does a writer have to address it and even attempt to bridge it? I think... I mean, the sort of tail between the legs answer is probably no. Um, I don't feel as, I don't feel my job is to address it because I can't, I'm not educated enough and clever enough to address it properly. You know, it's, it's like any other, I, I, I don't mind, I'll reflect stuff in my book, but the idea of having a sort of didactic kind of um, author voice, like a sort of telling the reader what is right and, you know, a, a kind of moral voice. It just doesn't, it's just not appealing to me. I'm, I'm interested in human beings at, at a much more kind of um, sort of prehistoric level in a mm. way. Um, and I'm sure, you know, it will be in, in later books, it will be reflected because of the change in atmosphere in, in the UK, the change in um, people's attitudes and the anger and the and the sadness. Again, that that will that can't help but be reflected. But I would, I don't think I would ever sit down to write something deliberately kind of, you know, triumphant in that way um, because I don't think I, I'm capable of it. Yeah, same. Um I don't know if there's a great cultural divide, but I mean, Trump, he's, you know, he's dangerous and ridiculous and easy to mock, but I'm not sure if he would, you know, was he any worse than, you know, what was done in the Iraq war by George Bush Jr., you know, when millions died? I, it's too early to say, because yeah, he hasn't been in the way. Yeah, I suppose, we to, I suppose we need to give him time. <laughs> to, to wreck um, everything. But I don't feel any, um, I don't feel a responsibility. Actually, no, I feel... I don't know about responsibility, but as a writer, I'm interested in speaking directly to the time that I live in. Which you have done yeah. quite and I think specifically I'll, with your two books. Yeah, and I think I'll, I'll never say never and never say always, but I think, I think that's, that will continue because that's partly because I don't feel a particular connection or a strong enough connection to either the history of England or the history of India, which is where my parents are from. So I'm kind of, I've got no, no other kind of environment to locate myself in other than other than the present. So I think by, by default to an extent, I'll always be speaking to the world I'm walking around. Yeah, I, I um, have to 
um, bang on about the Brexit question again. Um, but actually, it really struck me. I was reading a review of Hours of the Streets, your first uh, incendiary in so many ways novel. And the review quotes, uh, the quote is, the felt loss of belonging, the aching absence of a real past, and the corresponding urge to build a substitute narrative. This was about um, a young man, Intias, who's being uh, radicalised and sort of is a would-be suicide bomber, essentially. But it actually struck me that it could also be a narrative around Brexit. Um, and I just wondered, sort of, I'll sort of maybe I talk about Brexit forever and I wish we wouldn't have to, but how much do you think it will affect literature in terms of cultural practice? And do we actually care about it? Do we care about this enough? And do you care about it enough as writers? Um, Just I in terms of your own, you know, specific. I, I don't, I guess no, I, I don't, I, like the fear is one thing that kind of seeps into everything, but I, I feel like it's going to, you know, literature has survived this far, it's not going to wither on the tree and um, I don't know, it just, it seems like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, not Brexit in isolation, but as a coalition of lots of other things that perhaps mm. are going, that are happening in the world at the moment, whether it's what's happening in you know, you know, Russia or, or, or in America or you know, Middle East, and perhaps not even though those individual things, but it's kind of the atmosphere that they generate or the mood they create or the sense that there's kind of sense that there's an anarchic and kind of an anarchic energy kind of, or mm. a place or a mood in the atmosphere, what that will lead to. You know, we can only guess that slightly fretfully, but that I think that atmosphere I think is certainly um, I think even I can say it's even perhaps even infiltrating my the novel and work, whatever I'm working on at the moment. It's it's there because it does if I feed off it and I think it, and it feeds into my my work as well on, on some point. So not the not the particular event, but but the kind of vouchmats just to yeah. use a German word. Yeah, <laughs> kind of the mood they create, kind of it just it just seeps. It's it all just seeps and becomes like a sediment instead of just like the sediment of the work that you're working on. I read conscious that we talked, sorry, about uh, three years ago when you just won the EUPL at Edinburgh mm. Book Festival and yeah. kind of buoyant we talked to with a Hungarian and a Danish writer mm. who was also on the panel. And we, I don't think we could have perhaps foreseen no. What was going to happen in the next three years? No. Uh, perhaps we were a bit complacent. Who knows? Um, yeah. But just in terms of yourselves, back, going back to yourselves as writers who've been shortlisted for and won prizes, how does how does winning you know more than one prize? How does this affect you as writers? Does it um, is it an impetus? I mean, um, obviously it buys you time. But what's the sort of main feature of, of you know getting those accolades and Especially, you know, if you're being shortlisted for the Manbooker, for example, which is probably... I, I mean, about. I think it's, like you said earlier about, um, it, it sort of doesn't change, you've, you've always, as a writer, got this sort of monkey of doubt on your shoulder about everything you write, and, and you know, you're always convincing yourself you're the worst person on earth and the worst writer on earth. You've two are really down on yourself. <laughs> well, well, I guess... There's a complete absence of ego. <laughs> I, I think that's what keeps you writing, isn't it? Like, you know, finishing one book and going, that's not what I meant, like... And it's really irritating because you spent <laughs> ages on it. And then so you start another one to try and say what you mean more succinctly yeah. and then it goes off somewhere else. And um, I can see how it, it looks like it should give you confidence. It, the, um, to, not to be um, too kind of brutal about it, but the, the money is the thing that really mm. counts, and that I didn't want to kind of literally buys you vulgar. Yeah, literally buys you the time to write, and that is, I mean, if I hadn't won the John Llewellyn race on Which my first, which is now novel, extinct, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I wouldn't have been able to write my second book. There's no way I would have had the time or the money. I would have been straight back in PC world. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's a sense that each book, I can't who said, each book you write is an apology for the one you wrote before. <laughs> um, I definitely kind of recognise that. And I think that continues. That will, you know, well, there are lots of writers actually write. disown their first novels, quite yeah. famous ones. And um, certain writers pretended that she's never actually, actually published her first novel. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it is, but perhaps you can all take a guess. Um, I think as well that you've both interestingly, I think it's just fallen 
out that way, that you both published your first books around the same time mm. and you both won similar awards, same awards in fact. And uh, do you ever feel, do you feel, you know, you've had that time, but do you feel, how much pressure do you feel about, you know, have you felt pressure about the next book, the next, when we talked about this quite a bit downstairs about how you fit that in and, you know, a lot of writers churn out a book a year. I'm not naming any names, but um, (laughs) they do. Well, I think we were talking earlier about how we both have about three or four years between novels and that's because... Um, for me it's because it I don't know what I'm writing when I sit down to write I think on the page and and I change my mind and I rewrite and and it's really it's about meditating on something for three or four years so that just so that you can have some kind of truth in it rather than working out a plot and then kind of sticking to that Um, I think the the worst bit of advice I ever got before I ever started to attempt to write a novel was write one to 32 in a margin, then write one sentence about what happens before you start. Um, Who gave you that? Was that on your... It was on a creative writing course. I uh-huh. won't name her, because she's still working. <laughs> um, but it just, it made me go, well, I can't write a novel. I, could, I couldn't think of 32 things. Like, you know, because how do you... How do you kind of hold a plot in your head I, I don't know, for me it all has to go on the page and, and when you're working on a laptop, which I do it's very difficult to um, re- keep in mind that your novel is bigger than the size of the screen <laughs> and you have to kind of it's just a big it's a big old mess that I have to get lost in and building the novel is really finding my way out of that mess um, so that's what it takes me such a long time well, you were yes. saying that there's going to be a longer gap. But in fact, you know, your shockingly writing career didn't start with a creative writing course or even really with, with you know, studying literature itself. I'm saying shockingly in a kind of inverted commas. Uh, it started with reading. So yeah. So I guess it's the best, up, the best yeah, way. I guess how all writing careers really start. Um, I was a big, uh, I was a late reader, but once I started, there was kind of no stopping me. And, um, and then very quickly started trying to write um, um, a novel um, but I don't feel any uh, question of I don't feel any external pressure perhaps because perhaps like you, you, know, you put enough pressure on yourself to produce um, you know a, a novel that you're not embarrassed to publish really. mm. and that's 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 it so and I don't think any external pressure will match that pressure mm. you have on yourself to write to write um, to write a book um, and it takes me four or five years between books because um, you see, you just don't know what you're writing for the first year and a half. That's 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 that done. And then I usually I write thirty thousand words, decide it's wrong, jack that in, start again. And then you know, by the, this is by, you know, so I'm already in year two, year three, and you spend a year, eighteen months writing first draft, edit it, then a year to publish it. Five years go like anything, and mm. and before you know it, it's kind of and then yeah, it's kind of sad to think if I carry on these five year. Interviews. I've only got probably seven, six, seven novels in me. So that's yeah, kind but of maybe that's enough. One, I mean, obviously, I'm not trying to yeah. stop you writing novels, but I mean, as I said, I think some people perhaps produce, you know, the Joyce Carol Oates kind of machine. Uh, Vince has more than one of her. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Um, going back to the translation, there was a much-quoted event, I don't know if anyone's at the Hay Festival this week, in which Britain's increasing linguophobia, as it's called, is becoming more marked. Uh, you know, we're a very monolingual um, country in terms of learning languages at school because there isn't actually... Um, there, it's not mandatory to take um, a language at GCSE anymore. Um, and also less, less than 4% of books published in the UK are in translation. Why do you think it's so low? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the snobbery. And how do you think we can come up? I've got no idea. I kind of I, I went to this I went to a festival in Serbia called Kakinda Short Story Festival and it was the most amazing I think answering like what can we do? This just seems like the perfect model. There were thirty uh, writers, short story writers from all over the world reading for like there were two events, we were there for a week, two events, and each event was hours long because it's just person after person getting up on stage and reading in their own language. And then there was, it, English was projected, so you could read along or you could just listen. And it was absolutely fascinating. And what was the audience size? Huge, mm. huge audiences. I mean, like hundreds of people. And it was a real festival feeling. It was like joy and excitement and music afterwards everyone was trashed and it, it was just <laughs> like and it was a festival that's happening with barely any funds like we you know we were staying in really like a hotel that hadn't been open since the 80s and they just opened it just for us and it's just a building for the pigeons but it was just like such an exciting thing to be part of because it it was persevering despite no money despite the fact that you know talking to Serbian publishers and agents and just how different how differently it works there that a literary agent there has to have another job mm. they're a literary agent on the side as a hobby because you make no money at all and I, I suppose it's I don't know making enthusiasm is I think what we need. And yeah, it's interesting because we're absolutely awash with literary agents and publishers and book festivals and book prizes. Mm. So where do you, where do you think the jo- where do you think the joy's gone? Is it, do you think it's much of an industry? The um, London Book Fair isn't the most joyful event. <laughs> I mean, it's fine, but it feels quite like a no. careers fair. It is, and I've been to European book fairs. Yeah, and much much more interesting. Yeah, I was in um, in Lithuania for their book fair. Um, a few months ago and and it encourages kids to come along and, and like it's like a a day out for everyone um, as well as a trade thing and it felt I don't know it just felt like a again enthusiasm a sort of rather than just straight business and attention for example prizes like you got the attention in the UK that they that they ought to get by by the press so I mean, in the UK, it feels to me like it's slightly, it's slightly sad. It's slightly, it's slightly sad that literary fiction and how literary fiction is spoken about in the year is kind of dominated by who's on what prize shortlist. I mean, it tends to be one or two prizes that get all the sort of the um, press attention. And I think if we had a slightly more, or a much more perhaps kind of stronger literary culture or a, a stronger, it was a better conversation throughout the year about literature in the way for example there is about TV for example mm. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a much smaller you know, thing literature can to do but if there was a much stronger um, kind of literary conversation throughout the land throughout the year we wouldn't be so hung up about one or two prizes and who's on what prizes there's, there's often talk about the book isn't on the prize shortlist it hasn't worked or it's failed in some sense and it's always a roundup every year in the garden about yeah. what book worked and what book didn't and that, I, think yeah. that, I think that's really damaging to talk about novels and books in that way so I think the prizes are you know are great and then unfortunately they're necessary they're necessary because we don't have a strong enough literary literary conversation going on Unlike somewhere like our nearest neighbour in Ireland for example mm. which, which is much absolutely yeah. steep 
yeah, yeah and that's, that's a whole different it's a whole I, different I think thing. we're kind of self-conscious aren't we perhaps about literature we're very concerned that literature isn't snobbish it's accessible yeah. and when it's on television it's really done in a kind of cringeworthy yeah. embarrassing way which they don't have which they don't have in France for example mm. where they're quite happy to have you know, strong conversations about literature on TV but in, in the UK mm. the anti-intellectualism which has always been here I guess since Hogarth, pre-Hogarth, it's just it's still there and that kind of infects the way we we think of, about literature I think to to a great extent and also you know America's to hegemony you know we're you know, we are living in kind of an American empire it's probably the first empire that doesn't call itself an empire but that kind of um, dominate the, onto the translation question that dominates kind of part of the reason why we why we do see so few works translated into um, into English. So that must have been quite refreshing for you to win this prize because I guess you know when you're starting out as a writer it's always that you must make it in America you know it's like mm. being on tour with a band or something you know and it's it, to have this kind of different prize which is gonna you know your book is gonna be seen by lots of different yeah, countries. Yeah. I mean, this was a really different and great prize because you know, you're just told that you're one of 12 authors um, to be awarded it. So there isn't the kind of like the, the hoopla that goes along with mm -hmm. some prizes where there's a long list and a whittling down to you get, you know, the, the just drama. Just to say that, that, no, we don't reveal the shortlist for this prize. Uh, great writers on the shortlist. And actually, the people judging the prize, uh, they're not told what books to judge. All the judges bring their own knowledge of literature and their own books, and the stipulation is it has to be a writer who has published um, not less than two and not more than four novels. Sorry, interrupt. Yeah, so there isn't that sort of a, that hoopla or that mm. kind of circus around it in the way that, but I suppose that's part of the reason Potter doesn't get the attention that those prizes mm. that have that um, do. But also, so, but you're just one of like 12 groups of writers, and there's a really nice feeling when you're in a room and you're with these other writers for three or four days and you get to know each other and get to know each other's works and it's it's a different it's a different feeling See, it feels it's quite a lot of camaraderie yeah. in, in the group I was with what your group was like very nice <laughs> <laughs> now Adam Adam Fold said the same it's time to move to <coughs> questions um Hi, thank you. I just have a question for Evie. I'm not sure I understood well, but I was very impressed by the way you describe your writing process. So, can you elaborate on that? Did I get it well that you're saying that when you write, you don't always have a precise plan? Mm. I would like to hear more about that. Um, I don't even have a vague plan when I start <laughs> writing. I think that's one of the things that... Um, sort of calms me down when I'm, I finish one book and I have to write another one, is that every time my process has been just sit at the desk and write, and what the thing that you're interested in kind of comes to the surface after a certain amount of words. Um, so what I tend to do is write 30 to 40,000 words and then um, see what I've got and see if there's something that is sort of repeating. And then I kind of cut that down lots and sort of write over the top of it. And now I'm at about 70,000 words and I'm, I'm kind of confused about the structure. So I've got all these different threads and strands and it's putting them in order that, um, that kind of shows me what the plot is, sort of, um, and, and sort of tells me what the ending can be. Uh, it, I mean, it sounds like a mess and it is a mess. But it's um, it's sort of like it's a reassuring thing that it's whenever it feels too neat. I know it's not any good. It's too sort of packed, and feels like I haven't uh, thought about it deeply enough. If it if it's too simple, if it's something you can say in a sentence that your book's about, I feel like I have not done a job in three years that I should have. But it, there's a lot of cutting yeah. on the floor. We're lucky to have you because you're about a month from. Yeah. Yeah, so then also part of my process is just really ignoring it a lot when the deadline comes along and <laughs> not sitting at the desk. You said you're um, a little bit behind. I, just, I don't understand just the, the writers on social media who inform people of every stage of their book. It seems like such a terrible idea. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think um, anytime I think I'm coming to an end, I'm not. So I, I have to have my 
um, agent say you need to show me it now and you're probably finished because I will go I'll keep on writing books over the top of other books it's a stupid way of doing it really. no, I think that's everybody's different process have we got another question yes there please do you get involved much in your translations and ha having now been an author in translation does it make you view translated works into English um, with some translations I have been involved because the translators needed clarification so with the um, Italian one there's been lots of back and forth with the translator because um, I used lots of Punjabi phrases in this book and um, um, but with others um, nothing at all and I don't really know it's f the translation is finished until the, the book one day lands through my letterbox mm. um, so, does it make you view work translated English differently? Um, you know, I think perhaps it, it does. I think perhaps I'm more notice I notice more kind of variations in register or tone, which perhaps I wouldn't have previously because I've I've seen that that process. I've seen the translation process with my own work. I can actually see if the translation had gone this way, it would have sounded like this, and which would have been off. So, I think perhaps I. I think I can think of a couple of novels I read recently when I thought that's an odd change in tone. Is that the translator? Is that or is that in the book? And I'll never know. But it, perhaps I've, yeah, perhaps I've got more of an an eye for that than I did have previously. Mm. I think. Yeah, I think I um I met a couple of my translators. I met my French translator who has really spent about a year, I think, going back and forth, lots and lots of questions and. I remember there was one in particular where I described someone with cheesy teeth and she was like, the thing is, this is France, so I need to know what kind of cheese. <laughs> and it has to be a French cheese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then I, um, I went to Bulgaria to meet my um, Bulgarian publisher and my translator was there. And, um, and he was fascinating. He'd learnt English through watching Yes Minister and, <laughs> and Only Fools and Horses and you know and he was just he had all of these box sets and he was just like quoting you know Rodney and, and, um, and I know that he translated my work really really quickly and I wish I could read it because I am so fascinated by that kind of that tone that he would have that, that vernacular will have yeah. gone straight into Bulgarian <laughs> yeah yeah. What's the weirdest translated title that you've had that's kind of... Because I know a lot of writers are quite far away from their original titles sometimes, but... Mine have all been pretty pretty close to... So I know in, the, in Dutch Runaways there's no, there wasn't a word that worked, so they used um, luck finders, which I thought was quite nice. Mm -hmm. People on search, which I think fits well with and the, the idea of an economic migrant. So I thought that was, quite, that was a, a pretty translation. Yours are quote, quotations, your titles. So um, the first, the first one, one definitely yeah. is. Um, yeah, so most of the time they just do the translation of that quote that's in their Bible. Um, I think with All the Birds Singing, I think there's a nice one. I can't remember if it's the French one or, or which one it is, but it's All the Birds of the Sky, which is quite nice. But it's not. It's not, but it's um, <laughs> maybe it's the next one. <laughs> well, yeah. So, do we have any more questions? Um, I was just wondering if um, either of you could give us some recommendations of uh, books in translation that you've loved um, from the last year. You've both spoken a little bit about them, but I'm just intrigued to hear hear more about what you have to say. It's not from the last year, but I just I recently read Agatha Christoph's um, The Notebook trilogy, and I really loved that. Um, that's probably the last thing I've read in translation. It's not very up to date, but um, looks for bookshop stuff. Um, I don't know. I can't remember. I'm sure the books here because there's a very good selection of translated yeah. literature on these shelves. Um, you talked about that wonderful Catalan book as well. Yeah, Death in Spring by Merce Rodredo. I think it's just come out this year, but I think it's an old novel from the 30s, yeah. which has been reissued. Dawn Books are publishing it. Okay, yeah, yeah um, might be. Yeah, I can't remember the publisher. Um, so that was really good. That's about this 
community in Spain, in Catalan, who Catalans who are just um, have these very strange rituals, um, and the story of a young man who's I guess is coming of age in that community, but at the same time it's a story of uh, Franco and the community under that kind of um, that kind of life, and it's it's very lush and bucolic and frightening, and I, I, I really loved it. Um, so I recommend that, or anything like Jenny Erfenbeck as well, I should mm. think. I think she's amazing. She is amazing. Do we have any more questions? Sorry, this is a multi-part question, so I don't want to be long-winded. But first of all, um, what do you have any views on uh, aspiring writers attending writing workshops? Because I probably have attended too many. <laughs> Some will say, write what you know. Um, others will say, do not write what you know. And, and I think the write what you know school, it's... Uh, predicated on the fact that the first novel of any writer is sort of half autobiographical. But then I was listening to you saying you don't know, you have no plot, mm. you just start with a blank mm. page. So how do you start with the universe and then water it down to... I know, right? Um, <laughs> um, I, I think the write what you know thing it can can slightly um, confuse people because it's it's like you can't it suggests you can't write anything outside of your own experience and I think emotionally you can know things. Or that all fiction is autobiographical. Yeah, which is, again, exactly. Incorrect. Yeah, I yeah. think it. I don't know. I think. I mean, I write a lot about monsters which are not things I've encountered personally. Um, and, and so I would say that write what you know is, um, I, don't know, I guess it's more write what you can imagine rather than write what you know, but don't, I guess that it's important that it's emotionally truthful. That's the important bit. It's not important whether it happened like that. Or, um, I find a lot of students who are wanting to write about an event in their life, maybe a traumatic event, and fictionalise it, uh, but they want to stick very firmly to the facts of what happened to them, and maybe that doesn't make the best story. Mm. And if it's fiction, it's it's quite often much more helpful to them if they can get get out of their head that it's it has to be truthful mm. in that way. But as long as it's truthful emotionally, blah blah blah. Um, no, what do you think? Nothing. You see, you can know something emotionally, and even it might not. The biographical facts of this novel might not be your own particular life. The, you know, the emotional posture of the book is usually mm. very much your own, and that, for me, that's true in both my books today. That's what that's what, like you say, that's what it means for me to know something. Like, do I know it emotionally? Because um, I can't imagine how I'd write anything or any character that was completely like separate from that, that had nothing, nothing had, that had no overlap with me. I don't think I've got the imagination to. To do that, there would always have to be some part of me, mm. me um, present. Um, and uh, I don't know your first part about whether creative writing workshops are useful. I think for me, I think what they creative writing workshops or creative writing programs can do is they give they give time, they give you a time to write, and they give you a community of people that share your passion and you know that don't think it's silly to want to be a writer or don't think it's, it's frivolous or anything like that. And I think those are the two things that I think are really important about creative writing programmes. I think if, and I wish I had done one actually, I think I'd be, I'd, I think I'd be um, a more sophisticated writer if I had. Um, so I think, but you might have taken even longer to write Maybe, or maybe, maybe would have done it sooner. So I think they, they can be worthwhile for the right person. Yeah. But they're also different, that's the other thing. Mm. It's about choosing the one that's right for you. Um, and But you don't know until the end of it. Yeah, yeah and even then. Um, but I think it's, it's about taking yourself seriously for a year or something and, and being like, no, my work is to write a story. That's not a hobby, that's my work. And a, a broad reading list is always useful. Um, you know, being pointed at books that you wouldn't naturally go towards. But I'd say the, the, 
the best advice to any writer starting out is just to write. And that's a really boring bit of advice, but... I think just, it was uh, Martin Gordimer who said the writer has to tell the truth as they see it mm. as well, and you're just yeah. you're talking about what you keep in and what you leave out. Yeah. Do we have any final questions? Ah, oh, there's one over there. I bet your Bulgarian translator who learned his English on... Um, also, only for the horses. I bet he couldn't believe his luck when he got to translate a writer from Peckham. <laughs> yeah. Did he realise it was a real place and not a fiction? <laughs> or did he want to come and do a field trip and sort of come and <laughs> see where you lived? Um, but I wanted to ask, um, what do you think it was about your books that uh, was the sort of a... What, what is it in your books that meant it sort of had a European dimension or a European resonance sufficient for it to be chosen to win this, this prize? And when you were translated into other languages and you went and I guess spoke to people who'd read your work through other languages, mm -hmm. did, they, did they see things in it or react to things in it that were unexpected to you or that you, that you hadn't expected? Yeah, they hadn't expected. Um, well, the first part of the question, um, the, so it's a book in two, um, it's got two narratives and the other one is set in the UK. Um, so I guess that's the but it's an Australian woman, so um, it's, it's a UK landscape and it's very much about the landscape. I think, I mean, to be honest, when I've been out there with my publishers when I was in Bulgaria <coughs> and in Lithuania, the book had just published, so it was more about introducing the book to people. But I had a, you know, my translator was just like, my translator obviously in Bulgaria sees the humour and stuff and he was like it's a really funny book and the Lithuanian one was it's a really dark book so it's kind of it's interesting I don't know again that is so down to the translator and I don't know I think that's been a really really interesting thing meeting people especially my French translator who I feel like I almost feel like her name ought to be on on the front cover at least as large mm -hmm. as mine because the, the decisions she has to make about which are the right words, you know, she is writing a novel in a way, you know. And dual authorship, as it's often been mm. described. Yeah, yeah I, 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 mean, I don't know what the, what the judges saw from a European perspective to award the prize. Um, that's Catherine. But I guess there's, <laughs> you know, elements of migration and refugees, which I suppose is there in, in, on, on the continent as much as yeah, more so than, more so than here. Um, did the translators see it? Um, I did get a sense that the European um, translations, or the translators, viewed the book uh, radically differently to to the British ones. But one, but when I went to India, and the way Indian um, critics and readers read the book compared to the compared to UK ones, the, the Indian. Um, readers all really love the, the, the part set in the UK and so you know the Indian stuff was great but the UK stuff was really exciting that was great well the UK writer UK readers were all oh, the UK stuff you know was a bit but the Indian stuff was amazing that was like, really good so that sense of just you know, it's, you know the topsy-turviness or wanting to kind of see the other which is probably the other piece of what the book's about as well you know and how you know you you, you perhaps don't recognize representations of yourself but representations of the other you kind of you kind of think you know more than more than you do. If that makes sense. That's a great note to end on. I think Fran from EUPL wants to say a word. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, to the three of you. And uh, well, I want to say a few words about this mysterious EUPL you have heard about for the whole evening. Um, I'm here representing the consortium, the European Union Prize for Literature which is a consortium made by the uh, European International Booksellers Federation, that's me, and then the Federation of European Publishers and the European Writers' Council. And since, uh, for the last 10 years actually, we're based in Brussels, we are umbrella organizations representing the trade and writers and looking after the interests of the book industry. And for the last 10 years has been our great pleasure and privilege to be involved as well, in addition to other activities, in this EUPL prize. And uh, this is why we have been uh, uh, granted some money from the European Commission to co-organize these events. And uh, I want to thank very much the London Review uh, of Books Bookshop, 
both of you, Evie and Sunjeev, and of course Catherine, for this wonderful <coughs> evening, and wish you every success. And if I may add, if you were, I will anyway. You were wondering uh, if I had, if they had an advice about a great book in translation. Can I give you my advice? You should read Virginie Despentes. Vernon Subutex, she has just been translated into English. It's a fantastic read. It's a trilogy, it's fantastic. It's about the life of a CD right, a seller, it was not CD, it was music seller in Paris in the 70s. It's a trilogy, Virginie Despentes, Vernon Subutex. You will have a ball. <laughs> not that they're not great writers, please all read that. I have to promote this writer <laughs> because true. she's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, Fran. And thanks, Sanjeev and Evie. Just give a round of applause. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.